Well, it got quiet, so I take it it's time for us to go ahead and get started into our study this morning. Again, we're glad that you've stayed for our study, for our Bible study. We're glad to be able to do these again and appreciate so much those who are able to be here with us for that. As you know, what we've been talking about over the past few weeks in our Bible class is being an influencer, and of course we want to continue that this morning as you can see on our screen, but I want to begin by a statement by a man by the name of Adrian Rogers. Now you may have heard of Mr. Rogers. He is the, uh, was, he's passed away now, but he was the preacher at the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, if you've never known anything about the Bellevue uh, Baptist Church, it is a very large congregation. They boast of about 29,000 members, and it's probably one of the only churches that I know of that has its own exit off of the interstate. Now, that's basically what everybody in Tennessee used to say. It's just off of the interstate. But like Brigham Young that I mentioned earlier in the first lesson, Mr. Rogers has a very good statement as well. He said, It is more important to influence people than to impress them. More important to influence people than to impress them. You know, all too often, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether we're thinking about it or whether we just do it, we seek sometimes to make a show rather than make a difference. And we shouldn't do that. that. That's really not what we are all about. And when we try to do that, people can see through that like a window with no panes in it. You know, you just see all the way through, and it's so clear for people to see and to understand. And so this morning, we want to continue our study by again looking into the Word of God to see what it has to say about being an influencer if you were with us last Sunday morning, you know that we took a look at what Paul talked about, a metaphor that Paul used in regard to influence. And that was, he said, that we are uh, we're letters or we're epistles of recommendation. And so we talked about some things in regard to that. But this morning, what we want to do is spend some time looking at a New Testament example of some uh, influential people uh, that we can read about. And that's what we want to spend our time talking about in this lesson. Now, if you have your Bible, I hope that you'll have it handy because I haven't put all of the passages on the screen this morning. Uh, This is Bible class, and so we want to do some Bible work. We want to at least pick up our Bibles and be able to turn and look at some passages. Some of them I'll have on the screen, but some of them... Uh, we won't have on the screen. But let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 2 at verse number 47. Acts chapter 2, and let's look together at verse 47. There the Bible simply says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, of course, this is talking about the church at Jerusalem. It's talking about the, the church after it had been established on the day of Pentecost. As a matter of fact, it's in the same chapter that we read about the church being established. But I want to pay close attention to two things that are said in this passage this morning. Number one, he said, praising God. These people thought about their relationship 
and had respect for God. They praised God. But more to the point of what I want us to focus on is the next part of the verse. And having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. Do you notice that these people had in place great importance on the reputation of the Jerusalem church in their community, even so much that God would include it in his book, that by inspiration Luke would write about the great influence and the great reputation that these people had in their own community in and around Jerusalem in the first century. And so having favor with all the people. Now, how great of a reputation and how great of an influence do we find in the Bible that these people had? Well, I think that we can understand that by looking at a few verses out of the book of Acts. Let's go to the book of Acts chapter 2 at verse 41. This is prior to that, but notice what the Bible says. So those who received his word were baptized. Now the word received there, we'll talk about more in just a few moments. But they received the word and were baptized. And so there were 3,000, according to this passage, who were added to their number, who became Christians on that day, that day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Okay, and so the point that I want to make is that on day one we had 3,000 Christians in and around Jerusalem. Now, we know that there were those who were present on that day who were from other places, but we know at least 3,000 came to be Christians on that day. But then we go on to Acts chapter 4, and we look at verse number 4. The Bible says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And we start out with 3,000, some of those, of course, being from other places. But now in Jerusalem, we have 5,000, not total, 5,000 men. Now, I don't know how it was in the first century, but I do know how it is today. That in most congregations of God's people, there are more women than there are men. And yet the Bible says in the first century, there were 5,000. Thousand men. If the number of women just equaled the number of men, then they would have had 10,000, would they not? Okay, and so if they exceeded the number of men, then uh, we would have had more than 10,000 on this occasion. But then we go to Acts chapter 5 and look at verse 14. The Bible simply says there, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. Multitudes. And when we look at that passage, we understand that it's a a word that has to do with a a great number. That word multitude has to do with uh, an extremely large number. But again, back to the point that I was making in the previous verse, I'm not left to wonder if women were becoming Christians or not. Because in Acts chapter 5 at verse 14, we know that multitudes, both of men and women, were added to the church. But then here's another one in Acts chapter 6 at verse number 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied 
greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so we had 3,000, then we had 5,000 men, and then we had the number multiplying. And now, and we look at verse uh, 7 of chapter 6, not only were they multiplying, but they were multiplying greatly. And so we have another modifier that's used there. And, and as we look at it, we can just imagine how many thousands of people had become Christians in Jerusalem. Now, why is that? You know, there's no doubt that there was unparalleled growth in the church of the first century, especially in those first few months and first few years. But why is that? Well, those who believe in Jesus seem to have had an influence on others, those who were around them. Remember, we started with verse 47, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with how many of the people? All the people. And the Lord was adding to the church or adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so our point is they had a great influence on other people around them. But that brings me to a question. Why could they have such great influence on so many people in the first century. What made the church at Jerusalem so special that they were able to influence multitudes, great multitudes of people in order to become Christians? Now, here's one thing that I want to mention right here at the outset. I understand that they're not winning themselves to themselves. We need to remember what the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 1 at verse 16 that the power is in the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation. And so the power is not in the people, but it's in the gospel. But you know what? Without the people who are the spokespersons, who are the letter of recommendation, remember that we talked about last week? People can't be and won't be influenced. They have to be ones who are out in front, who are influencing others in order to even get them to take a look at the gospel. And so, what are some of the characteristics that these people had that maybe we should imitate and be uh, like? Well, number one, the church at Jerusalem was devoted. They were devoted. Look at... Acts chapter 2 at verse 42. <clears throat> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And a lot of times when we look at this passage, we look at the four things that are found in this passage that have to do with the worship that they did in the first century. Uh, four of the five things that we do in worship are found here. Singing is not there, but the rest is there. Somebody says, well, I don't see... Giving, but the word fellowship has to do with the idea of giving in this passage. But I want you to, I'm not focusing on that this morning. I want to focus on the part that we have bolded and underlined. They devoted themselves. If we return to the pages of the King James Version, that was the English Standard Version, we go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and it simply says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. What does the word 
translated devoted means? Well, it literally means to associate closely and continuously with, to stay close to, to adhere closely to. And so in other words, they adhered closely to the teaching of the apostles, giving and breaking bread and all of the things that are mentioned, those four things that are mentioned there. They continued steadfastly. They adhered closely to that teaching. Now, what difference does that make? Well, these folks were not like the ones that we read about in the book of Luke, chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. It's in this passage that Jesus is telling what we call the story of the sower. Hey, he went out to sow and some of the seed fell, you know, in different places. Okay? But in Luke, chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, the Bible talks about some of the seeds falling on the rock. Who, when the Bible says... When they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root, and believe for a while, and uh, in the time of testing they fall away. And then going on in verse 14, and as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Now, as you look at those two, those two people who have become Christians, You know that they're Christians for a while, but then their life begins to change. They they just wither up on the vine, if you will. They have no way of getting nutrients into their their selves, their their spiritual life. They're on the, the rocks, they're planted there, or there are things in the world that's choking them out. But here is the point. Here's what we need to understand. A Christian who is in and out, a Christian who is on again, off again, a Christian who is up and down, a Christian who does these things is a Christian who does not reap a great amount of respect in his or her life. These people were reaping respect. They were being influential to others. And the only reason, or at least one reason, was they were devoted And everybody could see it. They didn't have to question whether they were or not. We need to be what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 58. Paul said that we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because we can know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Okay, And so as we look at it, these Christians in Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem was devoted But then number two, the church at Jerusalem was united. They were united. Again, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44. The Bible says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were together, had all things in common. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. As you look and you think about what is being said here, you see a church that is united in love for one another, a church that is united in what they were teaching and what they were practicing. Uh, Let me just ask you, have you ever been a part of a congregation where there was strife and turmoil and trouble and... Maybe even a split. 
Well, I pray that you have never been a part of one of those. But here's what I want you to understand. In those congregations who experience those things, there's one thing that's for certain. It is not an internal affair only. It bleeds over into the community. People will know. People will see. And people will point their finger and say, well, those folks can't get along over there in that place. And so it diminishes the influence that we have in the community. Whereas the church at Jerusalem that we just read in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, they were united. In every way possible, the church was united. And so if we want to be an influencer, then we're going to have to, we're going to, have to uh, follow their lead. Now, it doesn't have to be just a, a, a whole congregation that is at odds with one another. It can be two Christians who are at odds with one another. It can be two Christian, a brother against a brother, sister against a sister, whatever it may be. And you know what? The same is true when these two Christians have a falling out with each other. You can rest assured that becomes known in the community as well. Their neighbors and their friends will hear about it and they'll know about it. And you can also rest assured that walls and barriers to reaching those friends and those neighbors are being built and may never be torn down. There has to be unity among the people of God. Now here are some passages that I want you to think about carefully. In Psalm 133 at verse number 1, now if this was a normal class, I'd say, all right, somebody turn to Psalm 133 verse number 1 and read that for us. But since I'm up here and y'all are far away, I'm going to go ahead and do that for us this morning and, of course, to save time. But in Psalm 133 at verse number 1, the Bible says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> how pleasant... <coughs> How pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Good and pleasant, as opposed to, you know, uh, hurtful and resentment and all of those kinds of things when there's no unity. Here's another one, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. This is a passage that ought to catch our attention. The Bible says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to Him, He says. Well, what are the seven things that are an abomination to the Lord? Well, he goes on and he talks about it. He said, uh, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. But the one that applies to our lesson this morning is the last one that he mentions. And one who sows discord among brothers. God hates for the unity of His people to be broken. And He hates for any one person to disrupt the unity that He wants His people to have. The church at Jerusalem had that united front. And what happened? Multitudes, great multitudes even, were becoming Christians because they had favor with the people. Here's another one that we need to think about. Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
that they all may be separated, divided. That they all may be one. As I, Father, am in you, and you are in me, that they also be united in the same uh, mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, at verse number 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are you not of the flesh, behaving in a human way? What is it that, that Paul mentions here in this passage as being a, a sure sign that they're still infants in Christ rather than being mature Christians with, that they should have been? They're bickering and fighting among themselves. There's no, there's no unity that is there. And again, we could go to Philippians chapter 1 at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then let's throw in one more. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Paul wrote and said, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who are causing divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that, I have, that you have been taught. And avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. As you look at that passage and you analyze what it has to say, the person who is disrupting the unity, causing division, is to be marked and avoided. You're not to have company with that person. We, we would speak about the uh, church discipline of that person where they're to be withdrawn from. And so as we look at it and we talk about it, God has a lot to say about unity. But when we look at the church at Jerusalem, a church that had great influence on so many people in the first century, they were a church that was united. But then going on, the church at Jerusalem was benevolent and unselfish. Benevolent and unselfish. What does that mean? The word benevolent means to... To be one who is a helper or one who is a giver to those who are in need. Look at Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45. The Bible says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I would simply ask as you look at this passage... What did the Christians at Jerusalem 
love more? Did they love what they owned? Did they love their possessions? Or did they love the people? Their brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are in need. Which did they love the most? Well, if they were willing to part with their possessions in order to help the people, their brothers and sisters in Christ, I think it probably would be pretty obvious that they love the people more. Do you remember what the Bible says are the first two great commandments? Surely we remember number one, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. And then Jesus said the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor after yourself. As yourself. They looked and they saw and when someone was needy, they were willing to help. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The benevolence of these people is almost unimaginable. God didn't tell us that we had to sell property in order to help others. Uh, that's obvious from Acts chapter number 5, where, Jesus, or whether, uh, where uh, Peter is talking to Ananias and Sapphira. He said, you know, that field, you could have done whatever you wanted to with it. But the example of these people, they were not communists or socialists. That's not the point that's being made here. But they themselves of their own heart, out of their own heart, were benevolent enough to make sure that everybody had all they needed. Uh, He wasn't saying they were all equal. You know, they didn't sell everything that they had and divide it, you know, uh, up evenly among themselves. But if they didn't have to uh, have in hand, they didn't have, you know, some, some, some liquid, if you will, uh, assets, then they turned them into liquid assets so that they would be able to help. But they were benevolent. We need to have that kind of heart in our own lives as well. There are very few opportunities that are greater to reach one for Christ than when a real need arises and assistance is rendered. I'm not talking about some deadbeat that goes from church to church just trying to get what he can get or what she can get. I'm not talking about someone who has just chosen to live a life that that they won't work. But I'm talking about when there's a real and true need. And that's what we're talking about, what we're reading about here in Acts. When there's a real and true need in the life of a person, It's then that their heart can be touched. And that's exactly what was happening in the first century. 
Do you remember what James wrote in uh, James chapter 1 at verse 27? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. If I was to stop right there and ask you what he says there, do you remember what the rest of the verse says? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, or English Standard, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That first part there. To visit the orphans and the widows. Folks, that doesn't mean to run by and see them every once in a while. That means to be sure that they have their needs met. But that's religion that's pure and undefiled. In the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 30 through 37, we read the story of, a, uh, uh, of how Jesus had been asked about uh, uh, what a person needed to do and uh, he talked about loving your, his, our neighbor as ourselves. And, and the man asked him, says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of what we know as the Good Samaritan. And I don't really have to read all of this passage to you. You probably know that story quite well. There was a priest and a Levi who passed by a man who had been beaten up and left for dead. And, and they didn't stop and they didn't help. And then there was a man from Samaria, a Samaritan, who saw the man on the side of the road and at great peril to himself, he stopped and he helped him. And he put him on his own mode of transportation, on his own animal. He carried him to an inn and he took care of him. And then he even gave the innkeeper some money when he had to go on on his journey, whatever it was he needed to do. He said, take care of him and if it costs more than what I left with you, when I come back, I'll pay you. Here's a man who is benevolent. And we need to have that kind of heart. Jesus said that's the man who is the neighbor. And if we're trying to find a neighbor, somebody who's just close to us, and that's the only person that we're willing to help, then we're dismissing what is said here in this passage. Here's another passage, Luke uh, chapter, rather Galatians chapter 6 at verse number 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who have the household of faith. Here's the point. A stingy tightwad, there we call it what it really is, a covetous person, reaps no respect from others. And we can't be that kind of person. Now, I've got two more points, and I'm going to make them very quickly. And we're not going to get to talk about everything that that I have down. But why was the church at Jerusalem so influential? Well, here's another reason. The church at Jerusalem was happy. They were happy folks. Acts chapter 2, 46 and 47, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A couple of things there, they were glad. The word glad is a very interesting word. word translated glad here. 
It's a word that means a state of intensive joy and gladness, often implying verbal expression and bodily movement. Or, should we say, leaping and dancing and jumping. That's how happy they were. Now let me illustrate the word and what it means from Luke chapter 1 verse 44. If you know from Luke chapter 1, you know we're reading about just before Jesus is born. But in Luke chapter 1 at verse 44, the Bible says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. That's what Elizabeth said to Mary when Mary came to visit her. The baby leaped for joy. That's our word. Those Christians in the church at Jerusalem, they were so happy. Can you imagine them singing and going around happy? And, you know, even to the point, you know, you can just almost see that they're giddy. I used that word a few weeks ago. They're giddy. They're joyous. You know, a long face, sullen... Doom and gloom, looks like he was weaned on a pickle kind of person, kind of Christian. They're not going to influence a lot of folks. And then last of all, very quickly, the church at Jerusalem, and I'm going to skip through some verses here. The church at Jerusalem was genuinely converted to Christ. Genuinely converted to Christ. Look real quick at Acts 2, 36 and 37. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? What had Peter preached? What had the other apostles preached? They simply had preached Christ. And these people came to believe in Christ. They wanted to know what, we, what they were to do. He told them what they were to do in verse number 38. And we know that in verse 41, those who received His Word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now we read the 3,000 souls a while ago. But here's the point out of this verse this time that I want to make. So those who received His Word... That word also is interesting. It literally means to take in fully, to embrace. These people had been, uh, Jesus had been preached to these people, and they fully embraced it. You see, they were not just members who had their names on a roll, they were those who had their lives changed by Jesus Christ, and they couldn't help but share what Jesus had done. For them. And people were convinced themselves, and they convinced others. And that's how they became such a great influence to others. As an influencer, do you possess the qualities of the Christians of the church in Jerusalem? Let's close with a prayer. Holy and righteous Father in heaven, again, we're so thankful that we can approach your throne. Father, we're thankful for the blessings that we have. We're mindful of all of those things, and we pray that we'll never take them for granted. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here today and study from your word. Forgive us when we sin, and Father, help us to shine his lights as we leave this morning. 
For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.